If you would please turn to 1 Peter, we'll be in chapter 2, verses 4 through 8, and I will read that for us here this morning. Again, that's 1 Peter, chapter 2, verses 4 through 8. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, good morning. Again, happy Father's Day to you fathers out there. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's a good day not to be sweating to death, so yay for that. Um, I know that our house in and of itself has had its own share of AC issues, and you know, being in a house that's like, I don't know, 85, 90 degrees, you know, it's, it's just a little much. Um, so... I'm thankful for the kind of the, the lull here temperature-wise that the Lord has granted us in these last few days, and it's actually been quite nice. And again, I think he's just preparing us at how he can bring things down. He also can bring things up with it going to be over 100 degrees next week. So, you know, you, you gotta, it's a matter of perspective here. you got to look at the whole picture. But um, no, weather aside, I'm, I'm grateful to be up here before you this morning te- uh, teaching and preaching um, to you, my brothers and sisters. Grateful that uh, our brother Gabriel and his family came, and Gabriel preached uh, for the last two weeks, and he did such an amazing job in exegeting these passages, and just so grateful for his, his words and how God used him. So, uh, again, so thankful for that. And one aspect is that, you know, I have to apologize because I don't have a cool accent. I'm kind of a northern nobody, and, you know, I wish I had some cool, like, Irish or Scottish draw, but if I tried that, you would probably boo me, and I would have to just hang my head in shame. Um, but no, I'm sorry, you're stuck with me and, and my blandness. But again, super grateful for how God used, used him. Um, thankful that they got a chance to kind of sit with and spend time with families in our church as well. So this morning we're going to start off with a brief summary of, of uh, 1 Peter chapter 1 going into where Gabriel left off in uh, verse 3 of chapter 2. So uh, again, as a matter of a summary here, 1 Peter is written largely to Gentile Christians, uh, just Gentile Christian audience, uh, mainly in the, what we would know as the, the Turkey area, uh, suffering discrimination for conf- confessing the name of Christ. The Apostle Peter wrote this epistle so that they might be reminded of their hope and salvation, and being so reminded, stand firm in the hope of the gospel. Within this hope, we, just like them, just like the early church, just like the first century church, are called to set our minds fully on a pursuit of Jesus. That involves a commitment to holiness and life and love for one another as we wait for our exile to end here on this earth. And that kind of summarizes or encapsulates uh, verses 14 through 25. And looking at verses 1 through 3 in chapter 2, we see that living lives of holiness and love is only possible if we cast aside all unloving attitudes and actions and crave the pure spiritual milk of the Word of God. And so this kind of, again, encapsulates or summarizes what we've been going over the last few weeks in kind of a, a shortened way here. But our main idea here this morning 
is as the church we are chosen and precious stones being built into a spiritual house for God through Christ. Again, that's main ideas. As the church, we are chosen and precious stone being built into a spiritual house for God through Christ. I don't know if, if many of you or all of you or some of you remember the, the hand motions that we did or did when we were children where you would talk about, uh, here's the church, and I'm not going to do the hand motions because I'm, I'm not a puppet and uh, maybe a dancing monkey, but not a, not a puppet. Um, but here's the church, here's the steeple, open the doors and you see all the people, right? Um, and so it kind of conjures up this, this thought in our mind of what? That the church is what? It is a building, right? It is a physical thing, right? And so we, be, we grow up with this notion again that there's a building, it's a certain architectural style, it's got, it's got walls, it's got doors, it's got chairs, you know, maybe some don't, I don't know. And we didn't have these chairs for a long time, so, you know, um, so who knows? But as we go kind of from that, uh, we discover that, you know, that's not actually the case, right? Biblically speaking, how, how does God define the church? It's not the building, right? And these are things that, these are concepts that we, we understand, right? Um, but consequently, the phraseology that is used is misguided at best, right? Um, people say, are you going to church or did you attend church this Sunday? When in fact, those are, are really kind of alien questions when you consider that, that and what Peter is saying here in these verses to us here this morning. So as we begin, we see our first point in verse 4, a chosen stone. A chosen stone in verse 4. This verbiage begins a new section in which Peter uses extensive Old, Test, Old Testament imagery to show that New Testament believers, both Jew and Gentile, are in fact new people of God who have come to possess all the blessings of the Old Testament Israel, but in a far greater measure. What we see is that as you come to him uh, really has the meaning of as you come to him continually. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, this is not just salvation, but coming to Christ in worship and prayer and through the Word of God on a daily basis. Something I know that is a struggle at times for us all, myself included. And thankful that God has mercy and love and care on us through, through, those, through those moments. But the term is frequently used in the Greek version of the, of the Old Testament as drawing near to God, either to hear Him speak or to come into His presence in the tabernacle to offer sacrifices but as we also see it used in Hebrews as drawing near to God in worship. And what we see here is that Peter hints in this verse at the theme more clearly stated later in this section that all believers now enjoy the great privilege originally reserved only for priests of truly drawing near to God in worship. What an amazing joy and honor that is to have. But rather than coming to the altar or even to a holy place in the Jerusalem temple, we now come to him through Christ, as it says in Colossians 2.9, where the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Peter describes Jesus as the living stone here, and thereby introduces this dominant kind of imagery that we see in this whole passage. So we're all kind of aware of, of statues and shrines built for, for these great men and women of old, right, religious figures and, you know, social and culture, cultural figures, you know, that we see them kind of encapsulized and grandized and marble and stone and paintings and, and, and all of these, these things. Yet the wonder of the Christian proclamation is this, that unlike Buddha, who may be enshrined in marble or in granite, uh, you'll never find that Jesus Christ. 
right? You will, but what I'm saying next will make more sense. Um, you'll never be found in that way, or it will never be explained maybe in those terms, right? That thing does not encapsulate Jesus. That painting does not encapsulate God. Again, our imagery of Jesus and God sometimes is askew. Uh, I remember reading Knowing God for the first time, and J.I. Packer really brings that thought to the forefront for me. It's like, no graven images. There'll be no graven images of me, no images of God. What do we think about when we think about Jesus? Him hanging on the cross, six-pack, abs, long, flowing brown hair, and the beard. The beard, I would imagine, is probably pretty accurate. Um, but we, we have a certain image, right? Now, our worship not, isn't necessarily on that image, but it, it, but it brings an image into our mind. And so it kind of maybe shifts our gaze away from who God is and the mystery and the majesty of God. Again, those are things that you can kind of work through, but if you ever are up for it, I think J.I. Packer gives a, a pretty convincing argument and a humbling one at that when it talks about things that we, how we think about God and how we see God through images and, and uh, things of that nature. <coughs> so we see that the one whom we worship here this morning is in fact the living stone. The living stone was rejected as worthless by the builders, but was chosen and precious to God. The imagery implies two building projects here, one constructed by human builders and the other by God. The human builders examine Christ and find him unfit for building upon. You know, whatever, whatever Jesus was selling, they weren't buying. But as we will see more thoroughly in the preceding verses of chapter 2, God declares that he will lay down a foundation stone and build on it. And Jesus claimed to be this very foundation in his climactic conflict with the, the chief priests and the Pharisees. And I, I don't know if you all really uh, remember this, but it is where Jesus confronts them and talks to them in, in Matthew 21 about the tenants, right? What happens in the parable of the tenants? Well, the, you see that these people are, are kind of uh, brought to care for the vineyard and they don't want to yield its crop when it comes in. Right? They want to keep it for themselves. And so the, the, the vineyard owner sends his son to kind of confront them and get what their, the vineyard produced. And they kill his son. Right? They kill his son and then hoping to seize his inheritance. And here Jesus quotes the same verse Peter states in verse 7. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And thus we see Jesus is rejected as he said in the parable. And Jesus warned his disciples of this very thing in John 15, saying that if the world hates them, hates them and rejects them, it's because the world has done so because of him and because they've done it to him first. So looking, so looking at Jesus, we see this hatred and rejection by the world, and the Savior explains why those looking to Jesus for salvation experience the same hatred and rejection. The alienated, suffering, scattered believers to whom Peter was writing are thus informed that their suffering is and for and in Christ. But as you continue through John, you see Jesus encouraging the disciples, even after kind of giving them a dose of reality, like, it's going to be tough, it's going to be hard, you're going to go through the ringer here. It's like, well, thanks, Jesus, thanks for the pep talk, I love it. Um, but what does he say in verses 33 of chapter 16? He said, I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world, you will have trouble, you will have tribulation, you will go through all these things, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Now again, I think sometimes we, we read over those fast, sometimes we give lip service to those things, but I, we have to wake up 
and remember this every single day. As our world changes, as our culture changes, um, as our lives change, we have, it's not that we have to adapt, we have to remember the gospel and the truth that is within us and within the word. And we have to remember the sacrifice that God has given for us. So the first thing we discover here this morning is that we need to confirm that, that, that should give us, what we need to confirm is that something that should give us courage, right? And strength as we face the challenges of life is that Jesus Christ is the living stone. That he is the living stone because he is resurrected from the dead, right? We're kind of hopeless without that truth, without that reality. And this transformation was put, uh, was that put strength, it put the strength uh, and uh, the backbone on Peter as I now pray that we have today. In contrast to the rejection of Christ by the world, this living stone was with all care and determination chosen by God as we see. What Peter means here is that in the throes of eternity, the Son was chosen by the Father to be what no one or nothing else could be. The Son of God was chosen to be incarnate, to come amongst us, thus assuming, again, himself nature of man, so that as the Son of Man, he could live a perfect life and die an atoning death for us. Though sinful men despise and reject this living rock of salvation, God counts him infinitely precious. The living God recounts us supremely precious, the living stone to whom we welcome and we come. And through our union of Christ by faith, our God regards us also as precious, as beloved treasures, no matter what rejection and abuse the world gives us and sees us as. There's a, a, a story about uh, world vision. I'm sure most of you are, are are aware of, of World Vision and kind of their ministries that they do around the world. Probably many of you are more uh, aware of them and, and how they uh, offer help and assistance to, to children, right? You can get a picture of this child and you, you offer monetarily uh, gifts to help them be fed, to get clothes, to whatever it is the need is. And you, they have these things all across the world. But in 2005, there was a, an earthquake in uh, Abbottabad, Pakistan. And World Harvest had gone into Pakistan to help, right? To help with these children, to help the destitute and the people that were kind of cast out as a result of all of the destruction that had happened and obviously didn't have food, didn't have water, didn't have clothing. And so uh, they were serving God in this place, which most of us know is Islamic in, in its very nature as far as uh, religion is concerned. Um, and one day as they were, they were serving and helping, they had actually um, had a break-in. And someone broke in and dragged out six people um, and killed them. And they killed them because what? They killed them because they were Christians. It was said that these terrorists, if you want to say it that way, uh, these, these people killed them because basically these Christian aid workers were, were going against the tenets of Islam and putting shame on them because what? Because a Christian church was an Islamic country taking care of Muslims. And so they were putting the Muslim faith and Muslims to shame because the Christians were taking care of the Muslims and the Muslims weren't taking care of the Muslims, or couldn't, right? And so if they couldn't do it, nobody could do it, and so they decided to kill them for it, right? But this is a call in our lives, right? To go, to preach, to serve, to love, to care for. It doesn't matter if it's in Islam, an Islamic country, in Abbottabad, Pakistan, or if it's in North Africa, or if it's in wherever. The gospel is true and is poignant no matter where we are, and the people next door, people across the street, people that you work with. It all fits, and God has a plan and a purpose uh, in 
all of these things. So as we go to point number two here this morning, we see that, um, that we are a built-up stone. Verses five and six, a built-up stone. Peter now draws a comparison between Christ and the living stone and believers as living stones. The living stone of Christ and the living stones of those who have faith in him are not merely a random assortment of wondrous and vibrant stones. Peter lists in verse 5 three aspects of what it means to be a living stone in Christ. And the first one he says here is that he puts us together, right? Temple and corporation. There's one single temple into which all believers are built. The Christian church is not primarily this social organization, but a new temple where the transformed lives of believers are offered as a sacrifice to the glory of God. Coming to Christ means coming into relationship with others, not only in one's own generation, but also in being united with believers of every generation, who likewise have been built into God's grand building project. The structure will be completed only when the, the scaffolding of human history comes down and the kingdom of Christ is revealed in all its glory. Even if Peter's readers find themselves alienated from their society and suffering uh, and loss of status, Peter reassures them that they have become part of a much grander and everlasting community. And I think that's something for us as the church to be reminded of. We have this great cloud of witnesses, past, present, and will be future. And even as I reflect on it being Father's Day, I'm so grateful for uh, the men that, as Tom prayed about, the men that God had put in my life over the years. Um, you know, it's, it's such an insurmountable, thankful aspect of my life that um, in those moments, I really didn't see clearly how God was, was shaping me and and kind of pushing me in certain directions, especially with, when it was in regard to the relationships I had with, uh, with men and Christian men. Uh, the examples that I had uh, as a, a father and stepfathers uh, wasn't what you'd really say was the best. Um, and so I got a lot of worldly advice, but maybe not so much the kind of advice that I needed, more so the advice that I wanted. Um, and so as, as you young men in here, there's going to be things that you want to hear and things you don't want to hear. And I imagine that the things you don't want to hear are going to be the things that are going to change your lives for the better in the end. I know they did for me. And so as we again consider this great cloud of witnesses, as we consider this everlasting community, you are part of something beautiful. You're a part of something grand. You know, the church is a family. You know, we all don't always get along. We all don't like each other all the time, but I don't think that's pretty reminiscent of any family. You know, we have our issues, we have our difficulties, but hopefully and prayerfully we all come back to each other, um, patiently loving and serving uh, each other. And I know I'm grateful for Grace Church, I'm grateful for, for the church at large. And so we see that it is by the values and convictions of this new community that we must now understand ourselves as the church then understood themselves not as self-centered individuals but as each taking his or her place in the spiritual house when jesus christ comes to reign within our lives he puts us together these individuals we as individuals were once without hope we were without god and we were without mercy we didn't belong we were lost and when we came to christ we discovered that he put us together. That's something we manufactured on our own. Put us into a relationship with himself and to a relationship with one another. William Barclay, 
at least I think that's his first name, W. Barclay, let's go with W. Uh, I'm sorry. He recounts a story and conveys this, this kind of this concept that, that Peter has here, and, he's, and it's about a, a, a Spartan king. So I'm going old school here. I love history. So there's a story about a Spartan king, and he he's, has a, a monarch of a, a neighboring kingdom who is, who is there, and they're, they're kind of going throughout the land and talking about Sparta and everything that it produces and has. And, and historically speaking, you hear of these, these grand walls of Sparta. And so this king naturally wants to see these walls. Where are these great walls, these uh, impenetrable walls of Sparta? And as the Spartan king is kind of taking him around and showing him everything, the king, not that a king would probably do this, be like, uh, excuse me, sir, um, you know, where, where are these walls? I don't see these walls. Where are these like, physical things? Excuse me. And the Spartan king looks at him, and he looks back behind him, which is where his army and his personal guards were, and he said, that's the wall. Every man a brick. Right? And so we see this kind of connecting together as the church and kind of going over that kind of that initial point here. It's not the building, it's the people. It's the community. That is the strength that we have. That is the strength that they had. And so what we see here is that, uh, that you know, all of the imagery that we have here in First Peter is of a building and not of a wall of defense. The idea remains that each living stone has a role to play for the integrity and the well-being of the whole. God's true house is spiritual in the sense that it is constituted by the lives of those who come to Christ. Point number two, he puts us in place, right? He puts us together, and then he puts us in place. And this is where we see the holy priesthood. So not only are we living stones being built into a spiritual house, we are also a holy priesthood. In other words, we are not merely the, the passive building where God dwells, we are also and active participants in worship. Not just participants, but a special kind of participation, the priests. This is the great teaching about the priesthood of all believers. We all, all of us, are the priests of this new spiritual house. And our privilege now as priests is to draw near to God with spiritual sacrifices. The priests brought the sacrifices into the tabernacle in the Old Testament, but now the tabernacle is replaced by the Christian church. The atoning altar is replaced by Jesus, his shed blood, and the priests are replaced by you, by me, those who believe in Christ. Point number three under this heading. He puts us to work. So he puts us together, he puts us in place, and he puts us to work. These are the spiritual offerings. These spiritual sacrifices are about the offering oneself as a whole person committed to serving the Lord. This is what the community, the church, the whole building must bring to the Lord, a people wholly committed to him in love and praise and worship. The Apostle Paul summarizes this in Romans 12.1 when he says, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer yourselves, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. When Peter says that the church must offer sacrifices, they are sacrifices of thanksgiving in response to the saving work of Christ and dying for his people and bringing to them forgiveness of sins. God's people come through Jesus Christ, whose own sacrifice on the cross for his people has gained for us access to the Father. So every aspect of our lives is a spiritual offering to God a special 
worship, a sacrificial worship. What we do, what we say, what we think, those all matter. They all mean something, right? Yes, even our jobs. I know some of us don't like our jobs. I know some of I know my job, I know other people's jobs, I know we don't like jobs, but this is an act of worship. Now, God obviously is doing, these, doing and working in, in our jobs and in our lives, and as mothers, as fathers, as parents, as friends, uh, as family, uh, in our jobs and other places as well. But the point is, we worship as we offer sacrifice, and our very lives are a sacrifice. And it doesn't stop when you walk out this building, or it doesn't stop when you stop talking to a Christian, right? It's an act of worship wherever you are. So God puts us together, he puts us in place, and he puts us to work. In verse 6 here, Peter now supports what he had said in the previous two verses by an appeal to Scripture. So we see his use of of the stone and the building imagery is not the, the fruit of his own imagination. He has rather been drawing out the teaching of the Old Testament Scripture in order to show us how God planned and foretold through the prophets what he had provided for his people in Christ, this rock of salvation. Therefore, Peter offers the words of Isaiah that, we, that he would lay a cornerstone and a sure foundation in Zion. He was announcing the building project of which we've already been talking about here in verse 5. The apostle announces Jesus Christ to be the living cornerstone of that project. Because of Peter's understanding of the relationship between Christ and believers, he simply extends the imagery to include those coming to Christ as taking their place in the grand building project that God had announced through Isaiah. You know, in looking at these foundational elements and talking about a cornerstone, um, you see uh, these in a building, right? Any building, uh, historic buildings, there's always this first thing that kind of sets the pace, if you will. And what we see here in Peter and what he's talking about, what Isaiah is alluding to, is that, that foundation stone, that cornerstone. If that foundation or cornerstone is off, then everything is off. Nothing is in line, right? It's, a, it's absolutely imperative that it is set right, otherwise the building is off. And then you start going like this, and um, you don't have your V8, and you, know, you look a little weird. Um, and I learned this when I was doing uh, a tile with my, my father-in-law, and we're just you know, gaining some knowledge here, and because uh, I had never done it before, and you really see how the tile is not set right, then you start to look down the line. You could look down the line, you're like, well, it all has like a slant, you know, go, kind of goes up, you know. Uh, not that we did that, because he's amazing at it, and I'm not. So if I had done it, it would have gone who knows where, uh, up the wall, you know, down the wall, around the corner, who knows. Um, but it was imperative to set those right, have their proper spacings, uh, because it actually made a difference when you went from that first tile or that first stone. And so we see that here as well. Jesus is the cornerstone. So when Isaiah Peter is once again assuring his readers that the one who trusts in Christ, the chosen cornerstone, will never be put to shame. He will set the line, right? He will set the foundation. Just as Christ is chosen and honored by God, so will we. What is true of Christ will also be true of his people. So we come to point number three in the overall, a rejected stone, as we see here in verses seven and eight. So the honor is for you who believe. Peter promises that those who believe in Christ need not fear being put to shame. It doesn't mean that Christians to whom Peter is addressing this letter to will will not be rejected. They most certainly will be. They'll be rejected by their families for leaving their ancestral faith, 
from Jews to, you know, to Christians or even Gentiles to Christians, just as some of us have experienced that very same thing here and now. And so nor does it, does it mean that Christians today, again, will, will experience the same kind of opposition. It does mean, though, that those of us who believe in Jesus will be vindicated in the end. We may go through difficulty in the here and now, but in the end, we will be vindicated. We'll be raised just as Jesus was raised. That is our hope. That is our promise. And God is saying here in these verses, you can't lose. You can't be disappointed in trusting and believing in the cornerstone. It is a firm foundation. Psalms 118.22 is quoted three times in the New Testament Gospels and in Acts, as we also see here. The psalm is an original, and its original context describes the return of the king to the temple to give thanks after this victory over his enemies. The stone rejected in the historical context of the psalm was the Davidic king, and the builders were the foreign nations that rejected the rule of the anointed king of Israel. What we see here is that both Jesus and Peter in Matthew 21 and in Acts 4 apply this psalm in a rather surprising way, a bit different uh, than we had just talked about in uh, the Gospels. Tom Schreiner says it this way, they, or the builders who rejected the anointed king, are not only foreigners, as we just talked about in his original context, but also the religious leaders of Israel of the day, that day in the first century. The religious leaders believed they were erecting God's building, but in the end, they rejected the cornerstone for the entire edifice. They had not simply failed to recognize the Lord's Messiah standing in their midst, but they had, by their own words and actions, disowned him. Right? They cast him out. Yet by doing so, they passed judgment upon themselves. They stood rejected in God's sight. I think Piper kind of concludes uh, this this verse 7, in a really great way, and in a much better way than I ever could. He says, if you believe on this, this stone, you can't lose. And if you disbelieve on him, you can't win. Human unbelief does not frustrate or defeat the ultimate purposes of God. If God plans for Jesus to be the chief cornerstone, humans can betray him, desert him, deny him, mock him, strike him, spit on him, hit him with rods, crown him with thorns, strip him, crucify him, bury him, but they cannot stop him from being what God has destined him to be, the living cornerstone of a great and glorious people. What a great truth that is. Again, how do you wake up every single morning? Do you, do you have that on your mind when you wake up? I know I don't. Um, it's like, oh, I got to wake up. Oh, I don't want to get up. Oh, I talk about the job. Oh, I don't, want, I don't want to work. I don't want to do these things. I don't want to be an adult today. Can I just not be an adult today? Say <laughs> so we wake up and go, thank you, Jesus, for breath. Thank you, God, for allowing me to wake up, to be married, to have kids, to have a job, to have a house, to have a great church, to have a great family. Those generally are not things we wake up with. Generally aren't thinking about what was paid as a result of Jesus going to the cross for us. That list of things. And shame on me for not. And so I pray that that was beneficial and helpful. And I pray that's the truth that we wake up with every single morning. The gospel just being on our mind and being on our tongue as we go through each and every day. So in verse 8 here, 
we stroll into it, and we are kind of presented with an, an interesting thought as we consider this, this final Old Testament quotation from Isaiah 8, 14. And this will be our closing comments for the morning. So as we apply this, this verse out in verse 8, we see Peter showing us that Christ, the cornerstone, becomes a sanctuary for those who follow him, but also that Christ will prove to be a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to the disobedient. And the disobedient stumble because they, what? They disobey the word. Peter uh, further explained that not only were the builders who rejected the stone humiliated and humbled, that it later became the cornerstone, i.e. Jesus. They also had stumbled and fallen over this stone. And they stumbled because they disobeyed the word. They diso- this disobedience refers not only to the kind of a, a slip-up, it does not refer to a slip-up, but one who tries to obey, with one who's trying to obey, but rather it means outright rejection of the word and the Messiah, that the word promised living lives of disobedience and rebellion against God. After this, Peter kind of continues and he says, their stumbling and their disobedience were destined by God. So what does this mean to be destined here? How can someone be destined to disobey? Isn't that kind of unfair a little bit? It sounds unfair. Well, we have to start at a certain point. Well, God is God, and God is sovereign. And God reminds us of, his, of a crucial principle uh, through Moses, and we see it in Job, and later we see it in Paul, of his divine right, of his sovereignty. He says, I will have mercy upon whom I will have mercy. We see this in Exodus 33 and Romans 9. So what is he saying? God never owes anyone mercy. I think that kind of makes us twitch a little bit, um, and again, kind of, brings that phrase like, well, that's not fair. Well, let's, let's look at this a little further. So we know God saves some. He obviously has mercy on some. He doesn't have mercy on others. You know, uh, the, the road to heaven is, is kind of narrow, and the road to hell is wide, as we're told. We can just look around us, and we know that there are certain people who are Christians and certain people who aren't. So we know that his mercy only extends so far. R.C. Sproul, which I would highly recommend going back and looking through and listening to or reading Chosen by God. Uh, it's a great work that he, uh, he put together, and uh, I think it's helpful and beneficial when looking at a topic like this. He says, what you, have, and what you have here is that one group gets mercy, and what does the other group get? Justice. Who gets injustice? Nobody gets injustice. I don't think our brain computes that. I think we see it in three different categories. I don't think we see it in two categories. At least I know I struggle with that. He states further, if God gave mercy to one group and injustice to another, then God would have his integrity compromised. How can God really be unfair in the, in the way that God is? There's no way he can be unfair. But God gives justice to one group and mercy to another. Nobody has ever been a victim of injustice at God's hands. To put it another way, no one will be in hell who does not deserve to be there. No degree of punishment in hell will be out of the proportion to the greatness of the guilt of the sinner. It's like, you're a sinner. You deserve to be there. God judges and condemns on the basis of unbelief and sin because he's just. So what does that do to our interpretation of fair? Well, generally we see it as we live life. Culture kind of dictates what fair is. Obviously, we've seen it change in a matter of days, weeks, months, and years. It looks different to us. And so can we define what is fair and unfair, just or unjust, by what we see in culture? No, we can't. 
We have to come back to God's word. We have to see what it says, what he has done in the past, and what he's going to do in the future. <clears throat> so many of you in here are, are teachers, and uh, it's a thankless job, and so I thank you for it. Um, but an example here that has, has helped me in the past when thinking about this topic is that say you as a teacher had given a test and out of however many students you have, 50 students you had, everybody fails. Everybody fails, right? Uh, you're like, great, I'm an awesome teacher. Or, or these, these students, they, they don't deserve my grace here. Uh, they deserve these bad grades. So you, you, could, you could do, again, and, and again, a number of any, any kind of things here. You could give all the students that have failed a failing grade because they deserved it. They earned it, right? They all failed. Um, or you could grade on a curve. I've been a recipient of you know, getting a, a paper or a test graded on a curve, and I had a 50 and I got 65, so thanks, I still failed. But yeah, you know what, my, my uh, average went up. So, you know, that's graceful in and of itself as well. Or the teacher could say, well, there's some really hardworking students here, and they really tried really hard, and so I'm gonna give them a better grade. Is that injustice? Is that mercy? Sounds like mercy. What about the other students that you didn't give the higher grade to? Is that injustice? Is that mercy? That's justice. Again, coming back to this, <clears throat> excuse me, this concept that everyone deserves hell. Everyone deserves a failing grade. They all earned it in this context, right? <clears throat> but God, but, but the teacher here gives mercy to some for his reasons and purposes that he knows and only he knows at times. And he does gives it to some and he doesn't give it to others. And again, I think that makes us twitch a little bit. But why? Why would God do this? What is the, what is the benefit here? Well, there's a, there is a sense in which God brings glory to himself by showing his mercy to those who have sinned and yet are called. Well, in other way, he receives glory by bringing his wrath on those who have sinned. You look at scripture, what we see here in, in Romans 9, 17, just a few verses uh, past where we had read before, it's talking about Pharaoh here, it says, I raised you up for the very purpose that I might display my power in you that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. In the case of Pharaoh, God hardened his heart for the purpose of God's name being proclaimed throughout the earth. Again, I think that still makes it, makes it a little difficult for us. But does God force Pharaoh to sin? I think that's where our brains, that's, that's where my brain kind of goes. And then what, punishes him for it? Now that doesn't seem fair. No, no, what we see here is that, that, that would make God the author of sin, and that doesn't line up with Scripture at all. And so what, what, what that is, is what's commonly known as double predestination. Again, we hear predestination, we start to twitch again. Um, but double predestination falls in this line here, that God has ordained them to sin and then punishes them for it. One, this is not biblical. Oh, is it not biblical? Um, <clears throat> two is it's not reformed in any shape or form. <clears throat> Excuse me. And it just doesn't line up with what Peter is saying here, what Scripture is saying here, and so this is not something that we would adhere to and should not adhere to as Christians. If God wants to harden Pharaoh's heart, does God have to actively do anything? All he has to do is re remove his hands. This is how Pharaoh's heart is passively hardened and not actively hardened, if you want to put it in those categories, and how God isn't the author of sin. He simply allows him to be who he naturally is. He allows him to be a sinner. 
and the rest kind of takes care of itself. Again, looking back at this example, if all the students deserve a failing grade, all of us are sinners, we all fail in this capacity, we all fall in short of the glory of God, we are all dead, right? Dead in our trespasses. So we have to start from that point. We start from a different point that we deserve, then we've started off on the wrong foot. We deserve heaven, wrong foot. We deserve hell, better foot. Again, these things are, these concepts are hard. These concepts are difficult. Um, and, and all these things, they, they need to be done with care and grace and mercy as we talk about these things um, and we work through these things. And, and thankfully, you know, we, we have open dialogue on these things. And this is not something for the church to, to be angry with each other about. But again, having these conversations, there's mercy and grace in them. And uh, as we look through Scripture and see what it says and not what we define as, again, fair, mercy, justice, and all of those things as we see it through our context of <clears throat> our own lens. So listen to what else Paul says here in Romans 9.22. What if God, choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath, prepared for destruction? Paul says God chose to show his wrath and make his power known by his destruction of the wicked. Ultimately, everything he does is for his glory. In fact, it should be noted that when the fallen angels, when they fell, he did not choose to show grace to any of them. Kind of forget that. They all received what? Justice. They received God's wrath. If we consider what is fair, it must be realized justice would require that he show mercy to none of us. That's a sum. None of us. Again, and that, that footing here as far as where we, where we are, all sinners. But because of God is God of justice and mercy, he shows mercy to some and sovereignly passes over others in order to display his glory. This is what's commonly referred to as reprobation. You know, sometimes we, we, again, we have hard time with these categories and hard time really kind of working through these things. And it is difficult sometimes to explain the why it's certainly difficult to, to understand and explain the how, how God does this. We don't know really how he does it. We know that he does it, right? But why, why is Peter talking about these things? Why would he bring these things up? And again, this is, this is supposed to be an encouragement to the church. This is supposed to be a, a caution, encouragement to those who are kind of going through these, these difficulties. But in the end, God is a God of mercy, he's a God of, of love and care, and that he is going to see them through until the end, no matter what happens. So in the end, you are destined for salvation as you come and place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And you are destined for judgment as you turn against him in rejection. Sin, wrath is on Jesus for those who are in him. Sin and wrath is on you if you don't. I'm not trying to do a turn or burn here. I'm just talking about realities. This is how it looks. There's a divine consequence to faith, if you want to say it that way. Again, our sin, God's wrath is on Jesus for those of us in faith. And one equally so for unbelief. God's wrath is on you, on the sinner. And his mercy is our only hope. However, not all those who kind of presently, as we see, deny Christ will persist in unbelief forever. Some may, in fact, come to trust him. And thankfully and prayerfully so. Only God knows who that will be. And so we must preach the gospel to all, not to some, 
to everyone, knowing that he will save those who he has called. C.S. Lewis once said, We all serve God inevitably, but it makes a great difference whether you serve like Judas or you serve like John. In the end, God is triumphant in our belief, our unbelief. He is triumphant in our obedience and our disobedience. Human beings, whether good or evil, rejecting or accepting, believing or unbelieving, cannot thwart the ultimate purposes of God. The stone which the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. So let me conclude this morning here by asking a question. Are you trusting Jesus or are you stumbling over him? Is he a stumbling stone to you or is he the rock and the foundation of your life? There's no middle ground here. Just as we talk God is merciful, graceful, and has justice, there's no injustice in God, here's the same thing. Are you living in the hope of the cross, its finality in your life, or is it something that kind of crushes you against the rocks? The light of Christ is either a warm embrace or gives you a cold shudder. Which are you? Where do you fall? The gospel is open here. Jesus in Matthew 11, 20 says, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The gospel is open. The message is clear. No matter where you are, no matter what you're going through, no matter what struggles you have in life, God is there. So hear his call in your life today and never be put to shame. Let me pray.